everyone, and welcome back to another episode of World of Sharks, a podcast all about sharks, their relatives, and the underwater habitat that they call home, brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. My name is Ayla, I'm a scientist and science communicator for the Save Our Seas Foundation, and every episode I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with world-leading experts in shark science, conservation, communication, and storytelling to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. Now, we do like to have fun on this podcast and talk about cool species, of course, but we also aim to raise awareness of the multiple threats that sharks, rays, skates, and chimeras are facing in the modern world. Collectively known as the chondrichthians or the cartilaginous fishes, sharks and their relatives are one of the most threatened vertebrate groups on the planet. And there are a myriad of reasons why, many of which we've covered on this podcast, from overfishing to the fin trade and climate change. But one of the topics we've not gone into in great detail is marine pollution. We did do an episode on microplastics with Dr. Alina Vichsorek. I believe that one is episode 22, if you want to go back and find that. But the term pollution extends to much more than just plastics, as you'll find out in this episode. In the relatively short time that we've existed on Earth, the human species has really left its mark. In other words, we have dumped a whole lot of stuff into the sea. Some things that we can still see the evidence of with our own eyes, like plastics, macroplastics. But perhaps more terrifying, there are a lot of things that could be considered invisible dangers. And scientists are only just starting to understand now the long-lasting impacts that these substances can have on both the marine environment and the life that lives in it. There has been a fair bit of research on the effects of marine pollution on animals like cetaceans, whales and dolphins, and in some bony fishes. But a big question mark still hangs over sharks. And given that many species of shark are top predators, or you know can be found pretty high up the food chain, you could probably assume that they are pretty susceptible to marine pollutants, as we also know that they tend to accumulate the higher up the food chain that you go. So it's safe to say that it's pretty important that we investigate and try to understand more about the long-lasting effects that these pollutants can have on shark health and survival. For today's episode, we have invited fish biologist and Save Our Seas Foundation project leader, Franco Cristiani, onto the pod to talk all about his fascinating research into this subject. Franco is investigating the effects of harmful pollutants on chondrichthians using the American elephant fish as a model species. Now, if you've not heard of this species before and are thinking, what on earth is that? Fear not, we do talk quite a lot about them in this episode and we find out all about how weird and funky and cool they are. They're effectively a deep sea species with a long, flexible snout, which looks and operates like an elephant's trunk, which is just so gloriously weird and wonderful, and that's not even the most bizarre thing about them, but I'm gonna let Franco tell you about that. But briefly, they are a species of Chimera, a close relative of sharks who fall under the umbrella of the Chondrichthians, and provide a perfect study species for Franco to investigate the presence and potential negative effect of pollutants on the reproductive and immune health of other cartilaginous fishes. This research forms part of Franco's PhD, which he is studying for at the National Patagonian Centre for Science and Technology in Puerto Madryn in Argentina. This PhD is the culmination of a lifelong passion for sharks, and you can really hear it in the way that Franco talks about his work. He has a lot of knowledge about sharks and their relatives that comes from not only his studies, but years of experience volunteering and working for shark conservation projects around the world and his determination to work on solutions for many of the large and complex problems facing sharks, which includes pollution. Franco believes in the integrative way of working between scientists and other stakeholders, such as fishermen, tourism agents, park rangers, educators and communicators, in order to find comprehensive solutions and generate knowledge concerning sharks and the marine environment. 
And he mentions this on the episode, but as a biologist, he feels strongly that he has the responsibility of not only publishing in scientific journals, but also raising awareness in the general public, which is a sentiment that I think a lot of scientists who listen to the podcast will feel. In this episode, we discuss the potential impacts of marine pollutants on sharks, just how big of a threat pollutants pose to marine life, and what we at home can do to help the issue. We also learn all about the bizarre but beautiful elephant fish, the amazing and vibrant ecosystem on Franco's doorstep in Argentina, why he chose sharks over dinosaurs, and why he carries out most of his field work in the dead of night. We had a lot of fun recording this episode, and I'm certain you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. And you will learn a lot as well. So without further ado, grab your favourite hot beverage in a plastic-free receptacle, of course, and let's dive into our episode. All right, so hello, Franco, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Hello, Aida. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. We were just chatting before the podcast started about how interesting your project is and how excited I am to learn more about it and find out more about marine pollution, about the American elephant fish, about the place where you live. I am so, so, so excited to get into it and we're so grateful for your time. But before we get into all of that, we like to get to know you a little bit better. And our first question is one that we ask every single guest on the podcast. And that is, do you have an experience with the ocean that stands out for you as particularly special or memorable? And I have to add the particularly just because quite often I'm speaking to people that have had a lot of ocean experiences and have a lot of ones that could potentially be memorable. But do you have one that kind of stands out for you? Well, yes, yes. I think uh, it's difficult to choose one, but... If I have to stay with one, uh, I would say like the first time I, I traveled to, to Galapagos Island and went diving with, with the hammerheads. That was a feeling and, and something amazing. It's being in that ocean and all full of fish and, and, and the waiting, you know, and the diving guide was like, oh no, the few days ago that they weren't sharks around and so we might not see and, and all that <laughs> mystery you know like I'm going to see them or not and suddenly I got lucky and saw like seven hammerheads a Galapagos shark also and that that dive was something I, I will never forget. Wow that is something that's been on my bucket list for a really really long time. How come you got to go to the Galapagos? What were you doing out there? Well, I was a student in the university uh, studying biology and on my first years, uh, after two, two years, I was like, okay, this is too much book. <laughs> I need to see the sharks, you know, I need to, to get contact with them. So I just planned a, a solo traveling uh, through Central America and like there wasn't a like a place I said, okay, I will go here. It was like, okay, let's let's see what happens. And suddenly, yes, I end up in Galapagos, which was, I liked to know the place of, I, I, like the mecca of biology, you know, and, and all full of sharks. And I, I just went there. I spent all the few uh, savings I, I got at that moment. I made that dive that was amazing, amazing. <laughs> incredible incredible yeah you're totally right like as a young biologist or zoologist or even just someone who's passionate about like the natural world the Galapagos seems like this kind of I don't know this this mecca that you need to make a pilgrimage to at some point in your career yeah I think that a lot of people have it in the in the bucket list but just go for it because you will not get disappointed <laughs> okay okay it's it's incredible all right well that's me that's me told i need to i need to just go out and do it <laughs> <laughs> don't think my bank account would be too happy but uh but yeah i'll come to argentina first and then i'll head to the galapagos <laughs> yeah yeah it's nearby 
<laughs> but no, it's such an amazing experience. And I've seen pictures of the Hammerheads there. And yeah, just just a spectacular place. But you're clearly very, very passionate about sharks and, and all of their relatives. But when did you first discover that passion for sharks? Since I have memory, I think, uh, since I was very little, like a child, I mean, a lot of kids are passionate about dinosaurs in the beginning, right? When they're childs or big animals and that kind of stuff. And in my case, it was a weird fascination with sharks. You know, I, I don't know, I saw movie Jaws and it wasn't scary. You know, it was like, oh, look at that animal, you know? <laughs> and I, I have like, like books for coloring, you know, when I was very little and I was obsessed also to have a jaw. Nowadays, it's like I wouldn't do it, you know, like like knowing, but I don't know, everything about shark were like like fascinating for me. And so my, my parents, my grandparents always, like if there was something about shark, they, they got me. So I have from toys up to whatever it comes to your mind about sharks. It was from since I was very, very little. So they, your parents, they weren't surprised when you became a shark scientist then <laughs> no exactly exactly it was like step by step and i start growing and the passion always continue and continue and suddenly i was getting older and start to think about okay what what i would like to study or what i would like to do and since i was 12 we went on a trip with my family to to the patagonia in argentina it's a beautiful place with with sea and and over there, I, I just spoke with a with a guide and talked a, a lot about biology and everything. I was like, I want to do that. I love sharks. I want. Oh, so you have to study biology. Okay, I will study biology. Where here, and this place is like uh, more than a thousand like kilometers from from the city I I was. So it was like, okay, mom, dad. I will leave house <laughs> to study here. Okay, no. Well, they hoped that after some years, like the the idea came came to 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 end. But no, suddenly I was seventeen, and I was okay. Let's go and see where I'm going to live, see the university, and luckily I I, I counted with a lot of support from my parents and. And things just were really nice and start studying biology and always with sharks in the in the in the mind. <laughs> That's really special to have that have that passion that sort of kept with you for your entire life. On the topic of your PhD, you're studying how human-generated marine pollution is affecting chondrichthyans, so sharks, rays, chimeras, uh, skates. But why was this topic important to you? Actually, I was in, in, in this program in, with the Great Whites, and I applied for this because I, I saw the, the proposal of, of the project, and, and it was... Oh, this, this looks really, really interesting because it was like to assess pollution, but, but look in the physiology of the animal cell to, to see what was the, the, the effect of pollution in chondrichthyans. I said, okay, I will apply it, but without hope <laughs> that I was going to be uh, chosen, you know. And actually, when I came back from one of the Galapagos Island trip, I went on the emails and I... I got the email that said, okay, you got the PhD proposal and was like, okay, now after three years of living out of Argentina, I have to go back. <laughs> but yeah, it was like, I always thought uh, that if I, if I had to go back to the academy or to do some science, it was going to be with a topic that really matters, not matters, but like that can be applied in a in a current problematic. Yeah, we are doing so so much harm in so many ways and it's, there's a lack of information also with, with these topics. I also was felt attractive for the directors of the project. That's also really important to know that, okay, who's going to lead me is it's a it's a good scientist, uh, a good scientist. Uh, that's really important. And so I, I kind of like say, yes, um, I will do it. I will, I will start the PhD and, and get to in the world of pollution. <laughs> yeah, and here you are. And a lot of people, a lot of people forget that. That's a really good point. The people who are your supervisors or your directors, that's just as important 
as the project title is, a lot of people get carried away with, you know, which species they're going to be looking at or what the topic is. And while that is important, you also want to make sure that you've got the right team because you're going to be working with them for years and they're the people that are going to guide you through that. But when we say human-generated marine pollution, what kinds of things are we talking about? Well, it's a lot of of stuff. (laughs) Like pollution... Being very general, it's all substances or things that are human created that ends up in the in the ocean. It could be directly uh, that they reach the sea or indirectly, but are all substances that can affect the nature and well-being of species. But that is what we think about pollution. And someone thinks about pollution, the first thing that it comes to mind is plastics because it's something macro and that, that we can see and, and we can see with our own eyes, you know. And, and nowadays with all the technology and the medias and everything, the impact that a footage or a video can have of tons of plastic uh, floating around. So we relate pollution with plastics nowadays, right? But we need to understand that it's a little bit more bigger than that. It's not just plastic. I mean... It is a really big problem, plastic, but there are also other pollutants like persistent organic pollutants, what I think are the invisible pollutants because we don't see them. They, they are just compounds, uh, substance. Uh, there are pesticides, insecticides, herbicides. There are a lot of things that, that we've been using for decades and despite most of them, they were prohibited already because they are known the effects that that could have in wildlife and and in the ambient itself, but we are still having them. And we are still creating new ones uh, to supplant the ones that are prohibited. And until those compounds are accessed correctly, we we don't stop. It's like a a, a wheel that, that is never going to stop. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's a problem, right? Is when you imagine rubbish and things, you imagine people like picking it up and clearing it away and putting it in the bin. But a lot of this stuff that you're talking about, a lot of the chemicals and everything that we were using decades ago are still cycling around the oceans. They're in the bodies of the things in the oceans. And so they're kind of going back into that. It's just all cycling around. It's kind of not really going anywhere. And yet it's it's scary to think of the stuff that we were using in the past and the impacts that we now know that that's had on, you know, not just marine life, but also ourselves as well. And to think, you know, how much other stuff that we just don't know what the effects of that is, is still around. It's, it's really, it's quite, um, it's quite scary to think about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's quite scary and and like mysterious also somehow because it's like okay are we all going to have cancer or 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 what one of the most questions everyone has you know like when they think pollution is like okay i will have cancer if this is polluted or or can i eat this every time we think about pollution we think of on how it will affect us like humans right and i think that the that the topic is never addressed trying to see how it affects other animals other wildlife I mean, we are all here connected. The well-being of other species, indirectly, it's, it's also good for us. And it's like, okay, no, if, if this, this concentration or this, this amount of, of substances is not damaged for us. Everything was like that. It's like, okay, no, and this particular pollutant, uh, is, it's safe uh, below a certain concentration. And meanwhile, uh, you have all from invertebrates to vertebrates and all those compounds going from one to another one and yeah it's it's quite scary but we always had had the this conception of okay the ocean is is enormous and 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 it's diluted and and everything you know but the species they they don't live in in the middle of the ocean only you know they move a lot and they make use of coastlines and and shores and bays i mean the the dynamic is way more complex than we think it is like totally and i i completely agree with you and and a lot of the you know the the animals that we're talking about a lot of the nature we're talking about they didn't have a choice in this they didn't create the chemicals they didn't dump them into the ocean but they're suffering some of the worst impacts from it and just like you said the whole way that the the ocean operates all the processes all the all the life in the ocean 
it's not simple, right? It's pretty complex. So you've got animals moving around, you've got animals utilizing different spaces, and we just don't know how these pollutants are moving around this space. And the thing that you're looking at is how pollutants can affect the immune and re reproductive health of chondrichthians, which is something I don't believe that we really know that much about at all. If anything, like what do we know already about what the impacts can be? Because I imagine there might have been some studies done on like other marine animals, maybe like particularly cetaceans. I don't know if I'm right in that, but... Yes, yes. Those are quite a lot of knowledge in, in general stuff. When, when we start getting into details, it's very difficult to get to know like, okay, this compounds makes this and that, or this particular population is suffering this. It's very difficult to study the effects of particular pollutant because at the end, there's not just one pollutant in the water. It's more like a soup of things. So it's very difficult. And when we get to, to study sharks, it's very difficult to have sharks in captivity or if you can have them, it's just small sharks and small rays. Going back to the, to the answer, what we know is that, and, and speaking about persistent organic pollutants, for example, that is all this group of insecticides and a lot of compounds that are used in, in the cities and well, in places where a lot of industry or, or farming, all those compounds uh, are really persistent. And there's a lot of studies that have seen that they be accumulating in top predators mainly. Why is that? Because it, it gets in the food chain and if you have long-lived animals, for example, that live for a long time and, and, and they are eating a lot, they are getting all these contaminants and accumulating them in, in certain organs. We know that sharks, as, as top predators, they are prone to, to accumulate a lot of these, these substances. And the thing is that they don't metabolize it that easy. Those compounds, they are like very lipophilic and so they, they kind of get attached to the, to the liver or uh, to the spleen, to the gonads. So it's, it's very complex though, because once they are there, they can start acting and mimicking with, with, with natural uh, enzymes, for example, or hormones in the case of the reproductive system. So all the, the natural molecules uh, basically make us work that regulates our reproductive cycle or our immune response and all those kind of mechanisms that happens in our body, they are regulated with uh, hormones or different enzymes and everything. And these compounds, they, they have the characteristic of mimicking this action of the, of the enzyme. So all those things can have a, a really disbalanced activity in our organism, in the sharks and marine mammals. Mm -hmm. So it, it can be pretty detrimental then, that's their like core life functions that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you have something inside you that affects your fitness, your reproduction, your capability of, of having offsprings and, and your immune system, it, it would all affect your survival. No? But the thing is that there's like a big lack of, of information also of how are this process, you know? We know they are there and there's a lot of, of research that have measure and have detected these, these compounds in different tissues from muscle to, well, to, to gonads, uh, liver, even gills. But it's, it's very difficult to uh, assess the mechanisms which are involved and, and how they are uh, interacting. What science knows is that most of these effects are like for long-term exposures. The, the, there's a, a phrase that I, that I learned not long ago ago that it says that the dose makes the poison right so if you start thinking like most substances can be poisonous it just depends on the on the amount on the dose so that's when when we start getting alarmed when we start seeing big amounts of these compounds i think that we are in in in, in a moment that that we start seeing like early alerts or we are trying to find this early indications in different species. I, in my case, I, I'm focusing in chondrichians, of course, but we try to see these early alerts to say, hey, this kind of pollution is, is going to, to bring this and that consequence. 
it's kind of difficult, but it's not that when we talk about pollution, it's like, okay, this animal is very polluted and it's going to die right now. No, maybe it's a little bit more complex. Maybe that animal is going to reproduce, but maybe not as well as if it wasn't contaminated. And something that we do know is that there's a, a big amount of transfer, like maternal transfer to the offspring. So already when they are, they are born, they already have a particular amount of pollutants in their body. And that is like, oh, wow. <laughs> so the survival and the reproduction is, is being compromised. Yeah, like a, like a domino effect even. Like, um... Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just like it reminds me of a lot of different things. Right? For example, we have a resident pod of orca that live on the west coast of Scotland here. So killer whales. Um, and one of the females of that pod washed ashore. And during the necropsy, they had to classify her as toxic waste because of the concentration of PCBs. Um, I've forgotten what that stands for. You you might know better than me. Polychlorinated bifenyl setters. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's why we have the experts on the podcast. But yeah, there was such a high concentration of PCBs that uh, they had to label her as toxic waste. But of course, you can only make the assumption that that's what caused her death. I think as well, it kind of harks back to what you were saying earlier about people imagine the ocean as this, you know, huge, vast space. There's so much space in which these chemicals can go and so they're diluted. But, you know, the ocean is, we, we've put so much into the ocean that it's kind of almost at capacity, like we're finding microplastics in the deep sea, for example, in, in, in fishes, you know, in the Antarctic, in the Arctic. So it is kind of reaching into all the nooks and crannies. Exactly. We're going to find out um, in a little bit what you're doing and kind of how you are answering that question with your research. But first I wanted to take us on a little bit of a diversion because I always like to hear about different places around the world where our, um, our podcast guests are working and where you're living. And you're based in the Northeast of Patagonia in a city called, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna attempt to pronounce this. If I pronounce it wrong, please correct me. Um, but in a city called uh, Puerto Madryn. Puerto Madryn, sí. Excellent. Okay, perfect. Um, but can you please tell us about the marine environment there and what kind of species that, or what kind of species of, you know, chondrichthyon that we might find around there? Yes, well, it's, it's an amazing place. I mean, as I told you, it was the place that I met when I was very young and, and defined me like, okay, I want to study biology. It's a beautiful place. Mm, but to describe it a little bit, Patagonia, when someone from outside Argentina hears about Patagonia, I, I think they, they just think that it's mountains, you know, but the Patagonia is a very big region in Argentina and it goes from the, from the mountains in the west. But then if you go all the way to the east, to the shore, to the shoreline, all the coast, Argentinian coast, uh, it's also Patagonia and it's kind of desert. Uh, environment and the coast is beautiful it's amazing because there's very few urbanized big urbanized cities i like to think that it's a place with not none but less uh, human impacted but it's also really really special in the marine area because from all the oceanographic um, characteristics with a cold current coming from the south with a warm current coming from the north and all that creates a bloom of biodiversity of food and, and, and different species and it's amazing. So if I start naming all, all the all the marine animals that we have there, it's like you will say, okay, now Patagonia it's on top of my bucket list. Almost as Galapagos. <laughs> But, it's already there. It's already on the. <laughs> it's already on the bucket list. Don't worry. <laughs> but yeah, we have like species of whales going from from the most common one that is the southern right whale, reaching more than thousand individuals, and they reproduce 
very near uh, the shore, actually in Puerto Madryn, that is in, in the coast of a, of a quite big gulf, but it's a, like a close gulf. And, and that makes like a very calm waters. And so attracts a lot of, of different marine mammals for the breeding season. So we have whales, we have sea lions, elephant seals, we have even penguins, massive colonies of millions of penguins coming every year to the same nest. And with sharks, we start finding top shark like a lot. And, and one of my favorites also the, the seven gill shark that is like prehistoric, you know, it's like, like being with a, a, a fossil. <laughs> Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, we have the spinny dogfish. I'm trying to go through the English name of the species. <laughs> um, the gatuso. We have, well, a little bit northern, uh, now going more in the Argentina Sea. We have a lot of species of sharks. And I mean, like, we are near about 50 species of sharks. So, yes, we have a lot of of different species of sharks. But is, I mean, I, I put this question in here, but like, I think I, I said, is marine pollution a big issue like in that area? But I mean, I'm it's it's a big issue everywhere, right? So maybe that's a bit of a, a silly question. Yeah, no, no, it's not silly because of course that in some places it's it's even greater, right? In a, in a place there are, putting all their waste in a, in a river, for example, or in, in, in smaller areas and they get more concentrated or in places where there's even more farming activity. I mean, of course, there's a, a difference, but, but yes, I think that nowadays there have been also detection of these pollutants in Antarctica. So that, that gives us an idea that no place is safe. But yes, of course, uh, there's a difference of, of impact. And in the place where I am, we have a, a growing city. It's, it's not like massive, but one of the main economical activities is an aluminum industry and, and also a big fishing port. Those factors and, and a growing city urbanized brings a lot of challenges in, in matters of pollution. And also that like our shore is not open sea. Uh, so the dynamic and, and the renewable of sediments and everything, it's, it works different. So, so the impact, I, I, we think that, that it's quite considerable. And there's already been some studies of in, in other animals, in invertebrates, in, in teleost fish uh, also. And they are quite concerning. So now, yes, what we are trying to, to, to do is to see what is going on with, with chondrichians. <laughs> but the species that you're working the most closely with is something called the American elephant fish, which I must admit, until I started doing the research for this podcast, I'd heard of them vaguely, but I didn't know much about them at all. And then I Googled them, <laughs> <laughs> which I would highly recommend our listeners to do because they are... <laughs> They're they look like a kind of weird like space alien exactly, type thing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, for our listeners who have also never heard of this species, can you describe it? Well, yes, yes. Uh, I will admit that also at at the first impression uh, with this particular species it was like, oh, it's really ugly, and it happens to a lot of people. Like, oh, this is ugly. It looks like an alien or. Like the reference are rabbit fish, rat fish, uh, ghost fish, know. you know, like. Yeah, I didn't mean, I didn't mean alien in a bad way. Like, I didn't mean it in an ugly way. It's like, a, it's like a cute little alien. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of course, like, like, like for some, for us, yeah. But, um, but I get a lot of, of people that doesn't know the species. And when I talk to them, I show them a picture or something and said, oh, that's ugly. That's ugly. I mean, no, look, it's, it's beautiful. It has a lot of, like, of of color patterns and I mean, it has, it, it charms, but when I started to, to work with it and I started to get more fun. And if you see it swimming, for example, it's beautiful. They have like really big lateral fins. It looks like, like wings, you know, it's not like that kind of, of shark that uses a lot the tail for proportion, but they swim with the lateral uh, fins and it's amazing. They are very, very benthic species. They, they are always 
well, not always always, but but they stay on the on on the on the ground deep uh, on on the seafloor. Also, that's why there's very few like images or video shooting because it's very difficult to see them. I mean, they have night habits. They are very deep. They're very difficult to see. But in the case of American elephant fish, what is beautiful is that this particular species, as well as a few more, for example, there's a, like a sister species in Australia, very common. What they do is like for the reproductive season, uh, they get near the shore to lay the eggs and to reproduce. In that moment is when, for example, in particularly in the place where I am, in the season of spring and summer, is when all the recreational fishers start to, to catch it. And in my, during my work, my sampling and everything, I got some footage that actually I'm about to upload it to the Sega Overseas uh, blog. I have some video of this elephant fish swimming and and I think that those kind of things make make someone get more fun with a with a particular animal, right? If you just see a picture of a dead animal or dead fish, it's like it's not that attractive. But when you see it alive and, and moving and everything, it transmits other things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, amazing. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing that actually. Cause I I personally think they're beautiful. Like they've <laughs> got this like amazing like silvery blue color. Um, and then they've got this kind of little protrusion on the nose, right? It, it looks like a little elephant trunk, which I guess is where the name comes exactly. from, I think. Yeah. And they're a chimera. They are chimeras, yes. Yeah, they're like a, really good in, in senses of the electromagnetic system uh, to, to detect prey beneath the, the sand. They feed a lot on, on bivalves, uh, everything with shells and, or, or crabs, uh, all those kind of animals, invertebrates. They, like, they feed on them, and so they're all the time going, <laughs> like, like searching under the sand for these species. What's also interesting is that males, for example, as, as they don't have teeth, particularly as, as sharks, they have like plates uh, to crush all these shells. As well, most people might know, uh, sharks to to copulate, they have to bite the female to to grab her and, and and make the internal fertilization. But for this species, they have two ways of of making this 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 behavior of grabbing the female. And one is like a very strange tenaculum in the forehead with uh, with tooth. It's like they have like little tooth, and yeah, it's. It's difficult to describe only with word, but with that they will grab like the like the lateral fin, and also besides that, they have like two kind of arms right next to the to the pelvic fins to grab a literally the the female. It's like two pelvic I how do you clasp? I don't know how to say. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, no, I, I I get what you mean. Like kind of like just some sort of like grabbing claws like claws exactly. yeah, 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 yeah 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 i mean listeners can't see this but i'm gesturing wildly as to what it might look like <laughs> <laughs> but yeah how how bizarre and this is just like why we were saying like in the beginning the more you learn about like sharks chimeras all of the chondrichthians you're just <laughs> you can't help but just want to know more because you're like they're just so bizarre and strange and there's all these things that we like don't know about them it's it's incredible but you said before when i was reading um when i was doing my research for this episode i read that you carry out a lot of your feed field work largely in the dark yes <laughs> why why is that why are you <laughs> hanging around without the lights on <laughs> well because our lovely american elephant fish likes to to feed on night <laughs> so it's not that you go to shore and just start fishing and oh look American elephant fish in like like during the day uh, it has to be dark uh, if the if the sea is really calm and transparency uh, you are not going to have that much of activity you need a little bit of rough sea because they are not fast swimmers you know so to avoid also predators and and to have more chances of of getting prey, I think they need to be like 
in conditions where they can see and the other ones know. So yeah, we, we had to go and, and look for them at very late hours. <laughs> How late is late? <laughs> well, sometimes I, I ended in the lab at 3 a.m. Suddenly we were fishing from 10 o'clock to 12 and nothing happened. And suddenly 12.30, we started having one or two fish. And, and yeah, so then to process the, the blood sample, you end up in the, in the lab. Very, very Jeez, late. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, need a lot of coffee to get yourself through through that. Um, but once you've actually caught this specimen, kind of say you've got back to the lab or you're you're out at sea, you're fishing for them, uh, you catch one finally at midnight or whenever it is. Um, what do you do then? So like what kind of data are you collecting for your research? Yes, the main thing we look for is is the blood. So what we do is we make a blood extraction from the caudal vein. We catch the fish, we, we take it out of the water, we cover the head with a wet cloth uh, so as it doesn't get like really stressed. I mean, there's a little bit of stress, of course, but we take it out, uh, we try to cover and we place it with the belly up in a recipient with a, like a, a mattress <laughs> with, a, with a hole. So it, it, it gets like steady over there. And the first thing and the most quickly is, is, is to get the blood. It's not that easy to take blood from a fish. I had to learn and it was quite interesting. So I, I take the blood sample and then we just measure it and we wait it and then we return it to water. And that's our main part. But also as we are in, in places where there's a lot of recreational fishermen or other people making use of, of the activity, most of them, they just take the fish and, and they will take it to eat. And, and that's when, well, we made a lot of, uh, of relationship also with a lot of fishermen, because whenever we saw someone took a, a American elephant fish, we just get near and say, okay, we, are, and we will need this sample. So that's when we, we get advantage and get some, some organs of interest to measure the amount of, of this compounds that we are talking about, right? So it's not only to see, okay, what's the effect or, or how is the immune system and the reproductive hormones in these species, but we also need to know if they are contaminated or not. That's how more or less it works. And once we have the, the blood in a little fridge and everything, then as quick as we can, we go to the lab and we, we do all the procedure there. We have to centrifugate. Most of things are also used in veterinary, for example. But yeah, it's very interesting to start knowing all this stuff about the species. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always in awe of how quickly you have to work because you, you know when you've got a live specimen on board and you're having to take everything that you need, but try not to stress out the animal and try to do it as quickly as possible so you can release it. You must get a like, proper adrenaline rush from from doing it. Now, you don't have to answer this next question because, yeah, um, I'm, I'm being a little bit cheeky with this one, but do you have any, you know, do you have any findings yet that you'd be happy to share, like, on the podcast? We, 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 we don't have any result, concrete result yet, because we just finished all the, all the procedures and we haven't analysed all the results yet. But for example, what we do have now, but that also wasn't like analyzed and compared with other regions or other things, uh, we have measured in some ovaries and liver uh, and in gills. We have measured aromatic hydrocarbons and also we have detected a, a specific insecticide that is well known here and, and, and with a lot of use that is called chlorpyrifos and we have detected that in, in gills in liver and gonads but as I told you we, we haven't yet compared it with a control site and, and we haven't uh, compared it with other regions so it's like okay we know that we are having this it's alarming but it's I don't I don't want to say, oh no, we found contamination when maybe yet it hasn't been uh, analyzed. So what we are doing now is finishing all the all the procedures, and once we have all the results, then we we need to start 
doing all the statistics and the comparisons and, and making the conclusion, looking what happens in, in other places. And so, yes, at this very moment, it's like we don't have uh, yet uh, concrete results. Yeah, that's that's totally fine. Um, it was just just on the off chance, but I know it's early days um, and you still got like analysis to do and things. But I mean, we'll just have to have you back on when you have those results and when you're ready to share them, because it's just <laughs> uh, really fascinating to find out what comes out of your of your research yeah something that's really important to you is is outreach and communication um and we're coming to the end of our time here but i was interested to know if you could deliver like one message to our listeners about marine pollution and chondrichthians or you know anything that you like what would your kind of takeaway message be that would be a long a long answer but maybe just to summarize this it would be like uh, personally like i think everyone needs to start being more self-aware of of what we are consuming in in in, in like in which amount also it's like we we still to be we need to be more responsible consumers uh, and it's not just about plastic uh, or one one use plastic and that kind of things you know I mean that's really important it's great because plastic is is one of the most uh, um, bigger pollutants now issues all right but um, but I think that all all things that we we consume from electronics uh, to to products uh, at, at our homes, uh, or if we see, for example, I don't know, not long ago I was in a in a in a meeting of a of the building administration and that kind of things, and uh, and I saw that they were using uh, these very industrial insecticides in the in the entrance of the building just to kill some some little uh, herbs because they didn't want it there and it was like and no guys <laughs> no we don't have to use this like i mean we can take it with a hand no but it's difficult because okay yeah but it's more harmful to use an insecticide when when it's not needed you know so there are a lot of things that First, we need to be more self-aware, I think, and and then if we see things that we don't like and how they are being treated, uh, we need to start like exposing them, right? Yeah, totally. And it, it, you, I think you kind of touched on this earlier, but like people can use their voice as well. So you, you know, you can say no, talk to your family members, talk to your friends, you know, spread the word. Because a lot of people don't realise just how much of our actions are getting into the ocean or sort of getting into the getting into the seas and, and sort of becoming part of that system. Exactly. But I'm also conscious that there's, there's things that goes way beyond us. You know, like um, a common citizen can might think, oh no, but but how I'm going? I mean, how can I influence when you have like this thousands acres uh, being uh, fertilized with this or putting these insecticides and these kind of things, and and you can't control that. So, but as as citizens, we I, I think we can't uh, demand for policies and 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 correct measurements. And I think that it starts also with the consumption. I mean, we need to start uh, asking ourselves from from what part came this that I'm consuming? How was this treated? And those kind of things. So at the end, maybe if that is reproducible in, in, in big amounts of, of people, the business has to change and adapt and, and try to aim for more uh, sustainable practices. Yeah. Totally, totally. It's just uh, a lot of a lot of little actions from everybody makes a huge difference, right? But we're coming to the end. This has been such a fascinating and really thoughtful conversation, and I'm now going to ruin it with a really silly question. Um, but we ask this last question to every single guest, and it is: 
if you could be any species of shark, ray, skate, or chimera in the world, what would you be and why? And I'm having to put a caveat on this because people are saying, oh, I don't want to be that species because I'll get fished or this species is affected by this. So it's kind of like in an ideal world where everything's lovely and there are no human impacts. What species would you be? <laughs> it's a nice question. I think I will go for the leopard shark. Oh, nice. Nice. It, because they, they are like reef sharks and like everyone that have been in a reef will know that it's beautiful and it's incredible. Also, they are not, they don't have to swim all the time to breathe. That gives them an advantage, you know, like the idea of, of, of never stopping, like hey, if I think of being another shark, it's kind of like, okay, I don't know if I want to be swimming all the time, <laughs> obligated. <laughs> I saw a picture of a leopard shark, like uh, like sleeping like a dog. So <laughs> like in the, in the bottom, really, really chill. Yeah, just chill for a bit. <laughs> I would love to see one uh, like live <laughs> be sharing that moment i haven't got the chance yet but 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 yes i think that if i had to choose one to be i would be a, a leopard shark. amazing and see you need to take that off your bucket list now i'll try and get the hammerheads and the galapagos and you can try and get a leopard shark on a on a reef there we go <laughs> of course yes 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 but that was that was a great answer and this has been fantastic you've been absolutely brilliant um and yeah thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for coming on the world of sharks podcast thank you thank you it was an honor i really enjoyed this podcast was brought to you by the save our seas foundation it was hosted and produced by me isla hodgson our amazing visuals are by Jamie Silver. Our beautiful logo is by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous thank you to Franco for taking the time to come on the podcast and answering all my questions about pollution and the American elephant fish. And if you want to follow along with his work, you can do by heading to the Save Our Seas website and looking at his project leader page. I will post a link to that in the show notes of this episode. And you can also find Franco on Twitter. His handle is at Franco underscore C89. You can also find a transcript of this episode, more information about Franco's project and Franco himself in the show notes on the World of Sharks website. And thank you at home for listening. If you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe. It really means a lot to us and it helps more people to find out how amazing sharks are and find amazing people like Franco who are working to make the world a better place for sharks and rays. And if you want a question answered on the podcast or a topic covered, please feel free to get in touch. We love hearing from you. You can email isla at saverseas.com or you can find us on social media. We are at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and at Save Our Seas on Twitter. Alrighty, have a chosen week and we will see you next time. <laughs>